So I think of anti-Asian violence as both structural, historical, institutional, right? The fact that our stories are left out of um, history books in the schools um, is a part of the violence. And that doesn't mean that what we need instead is more representation. We need an analysis. We need a critical analysis. And we need a new world by which the harms committed against our peoples historically can no longer happen. I'm not asking for, you know, a seat at the table. I'm asking for a whole, I need that table to be gone. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Thank you and welcome. Um, we're so happy for you to join us today. I am with the most stellar group of people today, and I'm so excited to be moderating this. Um, this is beyond hashtag stop Asian hate event because we really want to highlight some of the brilliance that's really been happening in Asian American community, particularly women of color in this community for many, many years. And the reason why we've decided to come together and have this panel is actually this group of women have been people that I've really uh, admired for many years. And um, because of the uh, shootings in Atlanta and because of everything that's been happening, um, I'm Stephanie Cho. I'm the uh, executive director of Asian Americans Advancement Justice in Atlanta. And um, I was really struggling with what was happening and I needed some guidance. And this group, uh, thankfully, was able to come together, um, support the things that are happening on the ground, give guidance um, from um, their years and years of expertise. And then I really have personally found so much compassion and care that's been part of this, uh, this community that's developed over time. And so I want to introduce this fabulous panel that's right here. And I, I cannot hype this up enough. This is my favorite panel. I just get to be a spectator and just get to shepherd the brilliance that is going to happen today. So I don't want to spend too much time on the bios because you definitely have seen them already. Um, and I also want to uh, acknowledge uh, other folks that have made this panel possible. Uh, Mimi Kim, Young Chung, and uh, anyway, we'll, we'll get going on some of the quick bios and introductions. I'll let folks also do some introductions for themselves. Uh, first up, I'd like to introduce Eve Tong Nguyen, who's a queer and disabled Viet cultural worker and sex worker who, whose organizing home is with Survived and Punished New York and Red Canary Song. Nia Norm, she, her, works in community advocate at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Asian Law Caucus. She is an organizer with Survived and Punished California, council member with the Asian Prisoner Support Committee and member of the California Coalition for Women Prisoners supporting the release of incarcerated domestic violence survivors, immigrants facing deportation. Asian Shim, she, her, is a queer Korean organizer based in Oakland, California. She is a co-founder of Survived and Punished and organizes with Survived and Punished California. Honey Woon, 
Sheher is co-founder of AAPI Women Lead. She has been an educator, researcher, writer, and organizer working on issues of racial and gender violence for nearly 25 years. And we're gonna start. <laughs> this is it. Okay, so I wanna start off with the panel to really give context of sort of why this is so important. For sex workers, criminalized, and incarcerated people, survivors of domestic violence and sexual violence, the fight to end anti-Asian violence cannot be isolated to conversations of racism alone. And so this panel will really focus on that today. So for our first question, we want to hear from everybody. So how did you really start organizing against violence in your communities? How did you come to the intersections of anti-violence and abolitionist work? And who would like us to start us off first? And start us off. <clears throat> Thanks, Eve. I'm Eves, and um, I've said this before in public and other panels, um, but I started organizing and became largely radicalized after the death of Trayvon Martin, which was in 2012. And since then, kind of over time, grew into the type of organizing that I do now. And partially, as you've already mentioned, I organized with Survived and Punished New York, um, who supports criminalized survivors of gender-based violence, because I myself am a survivor. And I think that often, as survivors of interpersonal violence, you kind of see the ways in which the system fails you. And I'm also a sex worker, so I'm criminalized for the way that I choose to survive and the way that I work that ended up happening for a variety of reasons. And you also are able to see the ways in which the criminal legal system fails people, the ways in which incarceration is extremely violent. And that's how I ended up sort of working at the intersections that I work at now. <laughs> I can go next. Hi everyone, this is Nia. Um, she is currently living in the Bay Area, been home for almost four years now. Um, I think for myself, I started my roots in organizing, um, as some of you might know, started when I was incarcerated at the Central California Women's Prison, the largest women's prison in the world, where... I realized that my criminalizations, uh, being a survivor, it was not really isolated. It's very common, especially for myself, coming from a background, uh, families from genocides, refugees, Southeast Asians, right? And um, when I started to look around me, as it, and I also realized that, um, you know, our Black communities, our um, brown communities, our Hispanics were all inside and very few that I saw white people. And the only white people that I saw the majority were guards, right? Um, of course, for me growing up, I was very sheltered in a way, despite growing up, you know, born into violence um, and uh, witnessing violence, um, domestic violence from the young age of six years old. Um, and myself as a domestic violence survivor, you know, a rape survivor, um, even learning that my mom herself was a rape survivor right before she shortly had me. I understand of all that compound of trauma um, for me and for others that are incarcerated. Again, it's not, um, it's not unique. Uh, that was my way of um, learning from their experiences of other survivors um, that they were um, like me criminalized first time sentenced to life without parole, that, that, that was what I 
sentenced to play, right, um, being a young woman that I was barely 18 years old um, when I met my abuser, um, I thought that the U.S. was there to protect me, right, especially um, being a survivor. But instead, um, I experienced, you know, direct courtroom violence um, during my trial. And I learned others as well experienced that. And the Again, from there, that trajectory of my life, I realized that the more I learned um, into my years of incarceration, um, I started organizing um, not only for my own freedom, but others' freedoms as well um, to think about how can I, you know, when I do get out, how can I help free people, help free survivors, and to really, um, with a critical lens, to um, dismantle these systems that are really out to target um, immigrants, refugees, people of color, uh, Black folks, our communities, and um, to to say that you know what my story is unique that we all can um, that there are other survivors too and we need to recognize um, that we need to work together and you know protect each other um, how do we again dismantle um, disrupt these systems I can go next um, so first you know I just want to thank all the folks who organized this event, um, including the counterparts, my co-panelists, um, because we've been working on this for a while. Um, so I just want to thank folks and thank everyone who is in attendance. I, clearly, you want to learn some things, I hope, um, as we try to figure things out together. Um, so how did I start organizing against violence? First, my name is Connie One, and um, she, her. I am based in Oakland, um, otherwise originally understood as Chichenyo land. Um, I started organizing um, quite young, um, you know, first because I was the first born here in Oakland to um, families, a family who were war refugees, um, similar to Nia. Uh, we were survivors of uh, war in Vietnam and across Southeast Asia. And that meant that when we got here to this country or when my family got here to this country, we were poor um, and um, didn't speak much English. And I knew growing, growing up that I had to figure things out for my family, whether that meant I had to translate where there were no language services uh, relatively early, probably around uh, four years old, I was translating in, you know, different uh, um, city offices or state offices and at the hospital. Um, and it was very uncomfortable as a kid, right? So I didn't understand what was happening. Um, and then even in school, when kids were kind of not understanding what a Vietnamese, what Vietnam was or, or anything about Vietnam, um, it also made me feel uncomfortable. So I think my journey towards becoming an organizer in part was because I was learning a racial literacy of what it means to be Asian in America. And that kind of, um, that curiosity bred through my own um, struggles with racial violence and gender violence, um, led me to become an organizer and had me, you know, reading a lot of literature that was available. Uh, and I read a lot of uh, Black radical thought. Um, I've told people in many spaces that I, you know, started corresponding with Yuri Kochianama when I was about 19 years old. Um, and learn from her what organizing means, what solidarity means. Um, and then from those personal experiences and learning things politically, I started organizing as a student organizer at SS State. Um, uh, I also started working at San Francisco Women Against Rape. Um, 
And I started doing a lot of work on gender-based violence because of my own experiences as a first responder at home um, and then in my own life, similar to the co-panelists. It became a way of uh, figuring out my life and then um, making sure that others weren't experiencing violence similarly. Um, in terms of how I got to the abolitionist work, um, as a Southeast Asian person, um, I have family members who were incarcerated. And I also know that having called the police to support my family and or my friends often meant that somebody else would get incarcerated or harassed by the police. And so in 1998, I was at a critical resistance conference around prisons and policing abolition. And I learned um, that the intuition I had around police not helping us um, was actually something that people were organizing um, around uh, starting in the 90s at the very least. So that's where the intersections come in. And I've also been one of the founding members of the Bay Area chapter of Insight, which works on violence against women and girls and non-binary communities of color. That's the nexus, I think. Okay, I was just making sure the interpreters were ready. Um, thank you, interpreters. Um, I think, you know, it's my first time on a panel where I think um, I'm not the only one saying that my roots in organizing started from violence in my family. And, um, you know, after a lot of speaking engagements um, for like my friends' classes or workshops, um, people often say like, oh, this is the first time I'm hearing an Asian American woman speak really publicly around domestic violence, around gender violence. And so I, I feel like I'm in good company. And um, my roots in organizing, like everyone else, start at home um, with my own family and the multiple generations of violence, whether um, through war or, you know, just the, the intergenerational legacy of domestic violence, sexual assault and child sexual abuse um, that have really kind of animated my fam family's trajectory, um, you know, in the United States and in my own life today. And... <clears throat> And I think, you know, my entry into organizing was really informed by those experience and wanting to make sense of them, trying to make sense of them. And um, and also simultaneous to that process, I was kind of figuring out if I was queer or not. I mean, it turned out I am. <laughs> and um, and so like that, that kind of process of consciousness, I think, was really interrelated, like queerness, experiences around violence. Um, trying to figure out what gender was and how it played a role in shaping so many of our lives. And so that led me ultimately to work with immigrant and refugee survivors, primarily queer and trans in San Francisco um, in a like direct services, domestic violence advocate capacity. And even though through my time in organizing, I'd learned a lot about abolition, just like kind of through osmosis, being around the right people and um, in like these certain political and queer spaces. And, um, but I think it was really doing domestic violence work that I was like, this is not working, you know, like, and I think I noticed just this pattern of, you know, something would go wrong with the police or with the district attorney's office or with the court process. And it was like, it was like a little bit like an amnesia that happens where there isn't really like this historical memory of things continuing to go wrong. And if things continue to go wrong in a certain way where survivors are um, being prosecuted, where survivors are being imprisoned, deported, um, facing really harsh punishment for doing what they needed to do to survive, um, 
then it's like, at what point do we need to change how we do the work? Right. So um, I think that really came to a head with um, meeting Nanhi Joe and starting to co-organize the Stand with Nanhi campaign in 2015, um, which was the case of an undocumented Korean mother who was being prosecuted for child abduction um, after leaving her abuser with her child. So, um, you know, in that process of doing the Stand with Nanhi campaign, also working in direct services um, in San Francisco, um, <clears throat> I was like, okay, the work has, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. People have been doing defense campaigns for a long time, um, especially in the Black feminist community. Um, so it was really through connecting with the Free Marissa Now campaign that I think the Nanhi Joe campaign was really strengthened and in communication about, um, you know, how to ground our work in, in principles of solidarity and abolition where, where, where our talking points are not that so-and-so is not a criminal um, because under the law, a lot of people are criminals and that is not like a moral, like the state doesn't have moral authority to say who's good and bad based on that, you know, designation alone. So I think it was, you know, really in connecting with Free Marissa now, the Chicago Alliance to Free Marissa Alexander, which is now known as um, Love and Protect, um, as well as California Coalition for Women and Prisoners that Survived and Punished um, came about was because we were talking about the respective cases that we were working on, people we were supporting, and like having drinks together and just commiserating over how often like these district attorneys and these systems were where, um, where a lot of times DV agencies were waiting on district attorneys or police to kind of sanction them, allow them to, to take um, a survivor's side if they were on, uh, quote unquote, the wrong side of the law. So, um, yeah, so I think that is how like the work kind of converged for me. And I'm really grateful to have been able to to learn so much from, from my co-organizers and so many people around me. Um, but yeah, that's it for me. Oh, I'm getting chills. Um, this is kind of, I feel, maybe it's just, I'm just feeling really emotional. This is great. Um, I feel like there's so many connections already that you've made just in your introductions and how you came to the work. And so I'm going to switch the questions up just a little bit, just because I want to go back on the sort of um, stigma and narrative against uh, sex workers within the Asian American community and also how it's perceived uh, externally and how it's sort of can produce the the situations like the shooting. And I wanna go um, back um, to Eve and Heijin to talk about that just because we were on that topic of criminalization. Um, Eve, do you want me to go first? Yeah, you can go first. <laughs> okay, um, please feel free to add whatever you need to. Um, I think there's a lot to say around this specific topic, and um, and I took a lot of notes before. I usually don't prepare notes at all for panels, but I did for this question because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss something really important. <laughs> but, um, you know, Asian people in the sex trade, whether they're escorts or full ser service sex workers or massage workers who may sometimes provide sexual services to customers or um, to survivors of trafficking, um, I think people in the sex trade kind of occupy this really strange place in the public imagination um, of our communities and beyond. And on one hand, there's so much stigma and um, this really deep disgust that's leveled at Asian people in the sex trade every single day. 
And on the other side of this is a super paternalistic sense of needing to rescue them. So, um, and throughout it, I feel that there's this intense voyeurism around it all um, with misogyny, orientalism, and desire woven through all of that. Um, and whether you're repulsed or disgusted or wanting to rescue, these two are usually two sides of the same coin, where the goal is to eliminate threat or uh, the threat of perversion or temptation. And to me, how anti-Asian violence happens in this country is so fundamentally linked to how Asian sex workers and trafficking survivors are treated and talked about, um, especially, um, you know, how, especially just how doing sex work, especially for migrant women, means that the violence against you is somehow just expected and accepted. Um, it's just supposed to be like the way things are. And the way that Asian women in particular have been racialized um, is so shaped by wartime sexual violence and the ongoing post-war, post-colonial sex trade and exploitation. So I do see that as like a key part of racial violence, um, like stemming against us is stemming from our perceived proximity to sex work, um, but more importantly to our proximity to the normalized sanction violence that people in the sex trade have to navigate daily, whether it's from police or clients or loved ones. Um, and in the years of survivor support work that I've done, whether it's at a DV shelter or a rape crisis hotline or a defense campaign to free a survivor from detention or prison, um, I've had to think a lot about the ways that um, organized abandonment happens in our communities uh, along the lines of gender and class. And it's hard for me to think of a, a group of people within our communities that is more projected onto, that's more disposed of, um, that's more erased um, and made invisible and spoken over than sex workers, people in the sex trade. Um, and in political spaces, organizing spaces, either they're thought of as being too privileged to be listened to um, or too exotic and abject to have voices of their own. And, um, and in communities and families, they're just like shameful and secrets to not be talked about. So I think there's rejection and abuse from both inside and outside of the community on so many levels. Um, and to me, the reality is that many people start sex working for economic need. And also that this need is usually shaped so deeply by the need to escape or survive other forms of violence and abuse that are happening in the home, whether it's child sexual abuse, domestic violence or sexual assault. All these things happen in the home and the family the most, which has been researched and proven time and time again. So, um, you know, gender violence, sex worker stigma, capitalist exploitation, racial violence, all these things um, produce organized abandonment and erasure of Asian people in the sex trade constantly. And, you know, in our communities who protect sex workers, um, who provides for sex workers the way that they do for their loved ones, um, who may receive their contributions, but resent them for it. Um, you know, when I was attending some of the, um, the vigils for Atlanta, um, for victims of the Atlanta shooting, um, I was so like, it just felt really heartbreaking. Um, and infuriating to me when, you know, people at those vigils, organizing vigils could not, would not even name that the shooting was an attack on Asian sex workers and perceived sex workers uh, because it was seen as bringing shame upon the victims, right? So, um, you know, the question of shame and bringing shame into the conversation when we lift up that element of the story, you know, I really want to ask, like, whose shame is it and whose who does that shame to belong to? Um, I don't think it's the shame of the victims and survivors. Um, ultimately, whose who shame is it and who should take responsibility for that? 
Um, I remember reading this article from one of the victim's sons who really gracefully answered this super invasive media question by saying that he knew what his mother did to provide for him and that it had included some sex work or um, sex work and that he had worried about her, of course. Um, and also that he had always been proud of her and he loved her, adored her. So again, like who's, whose shame is it? Right. And um, I was talking to a coworker yesterday um, about actually the, uh, about what happened in Atlanta and, you know, said like, you know, if any of the massage workers in Atlanta that, that day had been armed, and had successfully defend themselves, how would this have been perceived by both media and our communities? Um, those we lost are seen as these legible, mournable victims in death, but in life, how is their self-defense and self-preservation received? And can you imagine like what those headlines would have been um, if those victims had defended themselves and survived? Like <laughs> Asian massage parlor prostitutes gunned down man of faith in local community with photos of him like as a child with like, holding like a baby rabbit, like going to church or something, you know, it's not hard to imagine this because this is how violence against sex workers is constantly talked about. And, um, and I think it's really due to this very unique confluence of things that this now matters and that for, you know, and in the wake of what happened with the shooting, um, there's been a lot of money being thrown around. And I think for some mainstream voice, voices and organizations right now, they're getting major funding, major donations in the wake of the shooting without ever needing to say the word sex work or needing to present any sort of demonstrated support or commitment to Asian sex workers, um, people in the sex trade. So um, I think the organized abandonment of the most vulnerable in our communities, um, like migrant massage workers and sex workers and trafficking survivors, it continues. And um, it's just really saddening to me that in many ways, what I've observed is that they represent us when they when we want our community's victimization to be validated, but only in death and not in life when they're speaking out, not in life when they're organizing, not in life when they're doing life-saving work for each other and their loved ones. And why that is, is I think a question that we all need to be asking and answering in our organizing and in our personal lives. Um, because even in the most radical of organizations, sex workers are pushed out, harassed, even in friendships, partnerships, um, surveilled, distrusted, abused. And if you don't think that you know any sex workers or Asian sex workers personally, chances are that's because you're not a safe person for people to share that with. So I think unless this, this is kind of corrected in, in multiple ways, I'm not sure that we can meaningfully address incidents like what happened in Atlanta or the daily forms of these of like racialized sexual violence that um, that Asian women are enduring, like, you know, in in for many years now. But um, but in this particular moment as well. So. Um, I, I know that was long, but that's it from me. <laughs> Eves, do you have anything? Um, yeah, I wanted to give the interpreters a minute to switch. Um, yeah, I mean, Hedgen covered a lot, and thank you, Hedgen, for that. I want to only really add a little bit. As I think about Atlanta and the shooting, I think that often 
in the aftermath of that, and Hedgen mentioned this, a lot of people make an effort in to sanitize and also to distance the massage workers who were killed from sex work, which I will not say whether or not they did sex work or um, whether they ever engaged in anything that we might consider sex work and if they identified with that, right? Because these are really political terms and the idea of being in the sex trade is something that not a lot of people identify with because of shame, because of stigma and for a lot of reasons. But in the aftermath, because this became a national issue, became something that became like a really large issue for a lot of people and then people feel the need to distance them from the sex trade, whether or not they engaged in it. And even when people talk about it, right? I've gotten a lot of hate for even mentioning that massage workers are often thought about as being in the sex trade and are harmed by horophobia that are harmed by anti-sex work narratives, right? And I think that this is partially because of what I want to address is that there's an idea of perfect survivors. There's an idea of perfect victimhood. And the truth is, is one, Asian women are never going to fit under that idea anyways, no matter who they are, but especially not those who are migrant women. So they're never going to be considered perfect survivors or perfect victims. So in order for this story to have been lifted up the way that it has and to be used to sort of show anti-Asian violence in the community and to be lifted up by these cis het Asian men and all of these other people in order to make money and in order to say all of these things, it had to be sanitized. They couldn't have been sex workers because then they would have been deserving of violence, right? They're not the perfect idea of what a victim is meant to be. And I think that that's really important for us to think about in terms of criminalization, in terms of stigma. And when you talk about this, right, the exact distancing that people try to make when they're like, oh, no, 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 they're not sex workers. We don't want to victim blame them is exactly the type of logic that led to them being um, killed in the first place and also leads to sex workers, massage workers or anybody who's attached to the sex trades or to trafficking. Right. Which often a lot of low wage work that Asian women engage in are those types of labor. That's what leads them to it, having violence on a daily basis anyways, right? People don't want to talk about it, but the person who killed them clearly viewed them as being sex workers, right? Whether or not they were. And that is at the root of this. People feeling like they would be deserving of violence if they were sex workers. And that leads to sex workers facing violence every day. Anybody who's thought of as being a sex worker leads to violence every day, which we know in history, right? Many like Black, Indigenous, people of color, women are viewed as sex workers, whether or not they actually are, and they wouldn't have been deserving of violence whether or not they were. But because of those narratives and people's unwillingness to rip it apart and to throw it away, right, instead of rather saying sex workers, people in the sex trades, all of these different people don't deserve violence, never did, right, and that this violence is rooted in white supremacy, rooted in imperial wars and all of these things, they'd rather say, no, 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 they're not sex workers. No, 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 they would never sell sex. They're not whores, right? And I think that that is at the root of the issue. Connie? Yeah, so I'm going to um, just really quickly, um, you know, I, I think it's important. Um, there are a couple of things that folks have said that are just so profound. But I also think it's important that if there were 
um, sex workers um, or those to perceive to be sex workers, that would not make Asian communities the perfect victims either. So there's this idea of distancing ourselves from the underground economy, the informal economy, from anything that is um, potentially a poor mark on our Asian communities in particular, folks want to distance themselves from that because then that would render us um, not the good um, immigrant or, you know, um, not the good victim. And I think that to me was probably one of the most painful parts of having witnessed mainstream America hijack um, and kind of marginalize the narratives and the stories of the victims and survivors in Atlanta. Um, so that was one of the reasons why we wanted to make sure that that was amplified in this um, call, this webinar, because we wanted mainstream um, coverage around violence against Asian communities in particular to address the nuances and to not try to um, reinforce the violence against our criminalized communities, our um, formerly incarcerated communities, our sex workers, our migrant workers. We don't want you to further um, harm our communities by distancing or erasing the reality that our communities um, have been harmed, right? Um, and that we um, have resisted these harms um, in ways that mainstream America society does not approve of. So I want to come back to, you know, um, for me, I've only recently disclosed that I have been a part of the trade. And in fact, there are people in my family who have long been a part of the trade in tangential ways, in ways that are not for me to disclose. But what is important is the amount of shame that um, our communities, myself included, felt throughout the process, um, the fears that we felt because we had to live um, very um, uh, hidden, hidden lives, right? And that is what renders us uh, vulnerable to even more violence because there are men like uh, the white man, the 21-year-old white man who feels as though he can do the harms against us because no one will fight for us. Right. There's that. There's also the legacy of seeing Asian women in particular as expendable. Right. And that is by no coincidence that I think it was the day he shot and killed these people, um, that it was also the anniversary of the My Lai massacre in Vietnam, whereby women and children were also killed. Right. Hundreds of us were killed because there's this idea that we are dispensable. So when folks are thinking about violence against our communities, we have to think about the people who have survived multiple forms of violence that are actually hiding um, from the violence that we may be committing against each other. Right. Um, so I think that's the, the part that um, I wanted to highlight around why we're even talking about sex workers. Um, on this in this conversation. Thank you. This is, oh, this is such a important conversation, and I think this is the other. Again, this is the reason why we wanted to have this uh, conversation was because so much of the coverage, um, indeed, somebody in Atlanta too, um, how it got uh, 
sort of put out there in a particular kind of way and it wasn't talking about the nuances in any kind of way and the really real uh, piece where there are there's tons of money flowing um, to different groups and it's not going to necessarily the survivors um, and their families as well. Um, I want to um, bring back this uh, piece about that this is partially is the individual acts and then the sort of systems that you know, sort of play out. So anti-Asian violence is not simply an issue of individuals in, in the media. It sort of was painting it only as these sort of individual acts, but the structures as well. What does anti-Asian violence look like in the system, i.e. in prisons, detention centers, immigration policy? And how is this also affected by gender and or queerness? Yeah, I want to turn that to you. Okay. So first, in terms of like, who are these, um, who are running these systems, right? Um, as we know, these systems are created um, throughout the history of like white, white, white patriarchy, misogyny, um, like in terms of uh, anti-Asian violence in these systems, their cultural systems. It's, um, what does it look like? Unless you're actually experiencing it, you're a family member, you're someone that's working with, you know, victims, uh, with survivors. Um, it's hard to imagine it because uh, because Asian people are really, as what, you know, people consider the model minority, right? So when we are in these systems, we are often, um, myself, survivors, immigrants, refugees, are erased, individualized, we're denied. Um, that's why if you think about there's really no data at all about Asian people, Asian Americans who are incarcerated, right? Who are funneled into these immigration systems. Um, there are, you know, Southeast Asian refugees, about 16 thousand total who are in limbo now facing deportations. Um, people over 2,000 Southeast Asian refugees have been deported, right? These are the things that we don't hear enough of um, in terms of anti-Asian violence within these systems. And um, of course, it's really um, what we need to think you know, about is that like I spoke to like within our own Asian communities, often um, we're abandoned, right? Like for myself and other um, Asians, um, immigrants and refugees that are funneled into this uh, prison deportation pipeline that we, um, in a way that we're again, overlooked um, because it's hard to imagine, um, you know, Asians as the modern minority who are incarcerated. And when we are, um, you know, especially like young immigrants and refugees at that time in the early 90s, um, where we settled in impoverished parts of communities, um, during that time, along with our Black communities and our Hispanic communities, they were policed, um, they were um, harassed, you know, arrested as youth at a young age. And then um, without providing, having adequate resources, especially like, um, you know, it, uh, refugees um, whose families were not given that mental resources support. Um, and then, of course, the intergenerational trauma, traumas from the war, it builds on, right? Um, going to school, right? I think for myself and um, for other you know, Asian refugees, that was very hard to navigate, especially day-to-day, um, -day, like trying to figure out how to survive. Um, though I was, you know, sheltered, um, in a home, right, um, with, you know, my mom and my stepfather, but yet violence was still in the home. But the majority of Southeast Asian refugees for Asians, um, 
that was not you know common for them. And uh, yeah, I you know I did hear you know people from my own you know my family that um, you know their friends you know young son or daughter end up you know being arrested and being incarcerated. And then barely did I heard that when I got incarcerated that people were being deported you know as immigrants and refugees. So these are like the you know anti Asian violence that's happening within the systems that we've um, that are overlooked. That what we need to really you know think about is um, how can we. Um, for example, like in detention centers, um, people who are often, you know, criminalized are survivors, right? Um, as as uh, Pigeon point to, um, not that Hanji was in detention, but that the criminalization of Asian women, uh, people that are, um, you know, as refugees, um, even as permanent residents, there's policies that are not created to protect uh, domestic violence survivors, like like the Violence Against Women Act, um, especially with women with convictions like myself. Um, we're, you know, are not given, uh, we're only looked at as our convictions. And then in terms of like the community support within our own um but, you know, fortunately for me, I was able to garner that support you know, from organizations, from community that realized, you know, the, the impacts that it was in terms of, you know, being a woman, being, you know, a refugee, um, that my story is really not unique, um, that there are other, you know, immigrants um, and refugees that have um, been funneled into prison, into um, to ICE and deported uh, more so now, um, namely like in California, we're working on to build, um, you know, protection for those um, like myself that have been um, served time in state prisons, um, you know, decades, you know, 15, 20 years. But at the same time, um, you know, as immigrants, we, we're, we're harder. Um, it's harder for us to have that equality, right, of being able to parole, to rebuild our lives, um, especially if we didn't have the you know, chance in the first place. And what we're trying to do is say that, you know what, these are, we're building on the criminal um, reform of the systems, you know, that have worked and that what we want to is um, have equality for all, but yet there is still that divide, that tension um, among like, you know, the API, you know, communities that are, um, as Connie mentioned, that if it's not happening to them, it's not happening to their family member, they don't want to be a part of it because it's the shame, you know, um, as, you know, as Asian communities, um, this, Especially, um, we need to, especially as you know, Asian Americans, we are a growing population in the U.S. You know, we need to have data that, you know, disregard data that will provide us the opportunity again to um, to look at what are the resources that need that we need, right? Um, to not rely on these criminal legal system again, um, you know, for uh, you know, hate crime laws that really ultimately not. It harms our black, you know, our brown communities, right? Uh, we have to think about what is the root cause of why do we have a mass incarceration crisis, of why the API, you know, violence is growing, um, of, of why we need to um, really have these serious, serious discussions that instead of working against each other, instead of saying, you know, well, it's not my problem, it's not my issue, you know, let the advocates, let the people who are impacted deal with it. But um, again, that we will not um, fight against white supremacy against these laws and policies unless we, you know, get it together. And um, in terms of that, you know, for like, you think about like, you know, um, LGBTQ members, you know, gender and queer, they're also um, impacted as well with incarceration. Um, you know, they're less um, useful to that. They're migrants, workers, you know, undocumented, 
you know, disabled people um, that are in these sex industries, but that also criminalize, um, you know, in these systems that, again, are not built to support, to protect, but yet to um, to diminish, to, you know, to distort them and to disappear. Um, because I think white supremacy wants to say, like, either you get with this, you know, uh, these are our, our rules, our laws, or, you know, get out, right? That's what they're doing. They're departing our um, our our, our, our friends, our family members, right? Our um, CUNY members, um, right? And you have to think about it, like how do we get in the first place? Because Southeast Asian refugees, we've been here a little bit over 45 years, right? Because of US involvement in this war. Um, but yet at the same time, anti-Asian violence is really real. Now they want to get rid of us, you know, because they want to say like we are the problem, but we're not, you know, it's systemically, it's uh, white supremacy, you know, patriarchy. And that's what we really need to, you know, think about and have these serious discussions, which we are here today to think about how do we think beyond, you know, stop Asian violence. Thank you. Thank you, Nia. Um, yeah, I, I will just add quickly to that um, around like Asian, um, like criminalization and violence against Asian people from the perspective of having worked in the shelter system and having accompanied survivors to court on both sides of the law um, and also accompanying people to child custody hearings, family court, restraining order hearings, um, in, investigations, like you name it, <laughs> like housing, looking for housing with people, trying to help people get into programs um, for like, um, for like mental health support and so on and so forth. Um, and I think, you know, the way I think that common thread of no perfect victims is just like a, such a strong one throughout this conversation. And I think, you know, for survivors specifically, um, you know, I think the ways that I, I kind of just have like the, um, the residential schools on my mind in Canada, where where they've been um, unearthing so many bodies of um, Indigenous children that were systematically um, killed for genocide, right? And um, and I think just like that ethos of erasing people, of disappearing people entirely, is such a um, strong defining aspect of our of our systems, like with the prison system, but also in these other really gendered ways, like in the family courts. So, you know, I've seen survivors um, have their children removed from them uh, because of what they did to survive violence. And in the process, um, the child gets really traumatized and forgets their native language. And suddenly they can't communicate with their parent anymore, you know, or uh, like that kind of like linguistic loss, that cultural loss that happens, um, or like even within supervised visits, right, where the survivor is the one that has to beg for supervised visits and has like a white person there telling them what they can and cannot say to their child, what they can and cannot do with their child. So even like, um, like in Korean culture, when you like love your child, no matter what age they are, like if you're eating like like lettuce wraps, for example, you like make the wrap super big and you stuff it in their mouth. <laughs> and that's like across age. It's like, it's, it's love. And, um, and I've known people to be penalized for like feeding their child that way because it's like, oh, it's not age appropriate. It's not um, appropriate in the U S like, that's not, that's like infantilizing them. That's building an inappropriate connection. Like it's, you know, so even, even those kinds of like different cultural practices of showing love and affection and connection, um, is really surveilled and monitored and, and penalized um, in this system. So I think like the, the carceral system is not just in 
prisons, which that is, of course, the epicenter. But I think the the system of prison and policing has also folded in all these other seemingly unrelated areas um, like family court, which actually, if you stop and think about it, it's like, of course, it's just another extension of the police. But, you know, the way that shelters um, can become like um like miniature jails, for example, with really intense curfews. Um, if you break a rule, then you get kicked out and you're just on the streets. Um, you know, so much in terms of like what is seen as support provided in this country is actually codified by the logic of policing and criminalization and always sifting out who is worthy and who is not, who is worthy and who is not. And I think that really, um, that like white supremacist way of evaluating and systematizing, like kind of taxonomizing people, categorizing people. Um, it's just so, so central to how, um, how American values are, how American systems are. So I think I wanted to kind of point out those like gendered racialized aspects too, um, especially when it comes to the family as like this site of struggle, as, as this site of, um, of struggling for power over like, um, yeah, over everything. Because I think, you know, again, like so much, violence and sexual abuse and domestic violence happens within the home, within our families. And our families are also um, enduring many legacies of, of war, um, of poverty, of, you know, forced migration, of, you know, so many different kinds of things. Yeah, and getting to the heart of, like, what you're saying, who matters and who doesn't, right? Is that, that theme of it that I think is just really hard to hear and it's also like the the basis of you know where this violence really comes from um i want to go back to this other point about um sort of when we talk about anti-asian violence overall like really what gets erased invisibilized and denied connie i want to start with you um because this this theme is coming up over and over who's valued who's not Got it. Um, there's so much richness on our panel, so I'm trying to absorb everything as well. Um, and it also helps me to think through that question. When we talk about anti-Asian violence, you know, what's what gets missed, right? I think it's important, a couple of things that I'm thinking about. One is there has been a long time, uh, a long legacy of anti-Asian violence being waged um, by the United States and um, other European colonies and colonizers, right? And I think that's important for us to remember when we talk about anti-Asian violence. I talked briefly about it in the last question, but I think it's important to remember that for a lot of communities who are here in the United States on stolen land, that we came here um, as a result of colonial and imperialist wars. Many of us came here through that legacy um, or are here because of that. And the U.S. history books um, conveniently forget to tell that story, right, as a part of the assimilation process for us. Um, it forgets to tell us um, or to remind us that, you know, um, for instance, Vietnam was colonized by multiple countries, um, the United States as an attempt, um, or actually the United States, uh, the French, 
uh, historically China, right? So for people in my family, um, we have been fighting generations of colonization and imperialist wars. I think that that's important to remember when we think about anti-Asian violence that gets erased, right? The temporality of anti-Asian violence, the timeline um, gets conveniently forgotten. I think when we think about anti-Asian violence, you know, um, I think it's really important to remember um, normalized forms of violence, right? So I, I talked about this a minute ago, growing up without language services for my grandparents, for my mom, even up until about an hour ago, Um I think that's a form of violence, right? Forcing our community members to, and our family members to navigate through very complex, bureaucratic and violent institutions, including immigration, prisons, healthcare, right? Um, applying for a job, right? These are um, kind of challenging circumstances for our families to navigate through without any language services. That, to me, is a part of the violence. And when we count those encounters or we count the harms um, that come as a result of not having access to language, let alone the racism, um, you will you know, have to account for um, hundreds of thousands of survivors of a racist, um, Eurocentric uh, nation state. You'll have to account for that. When you um, identify these forms of institutional violence as anti-Asian violence, then you have to also take into account, you know, um, every Friday in Oakland, Chinatown, my mom, my sister and I, and a couple of our neighbors and friends will go to the farmer's market, Chinatown farmer market, and you'll see Asian elders selling canned, canned goods, two cans for a dollar or a plant that they've grown for 50 cents. Right? You have to look at these poverty rates um, as a form of anti-Asian violence and elderly abuse. You have to count that. And when you count that, then the numbers are even greater than what you than what mainstream media likes to focus on on television and then repeat without sound. Right. So I think of anti-Asian violence as both structural, historical, institutional. Right. The fact that our stories are left out of um, history books in the schools um, is a part of the violence. And that doesn't mean that what we need instead is more representation. We need an analysis. We need a critical analysis and we need a new world by which the harms committed against our peoples historically can no longer happen. I'm not asking for, you know, a seat at the table. I'm asking for a whole, I need that table to be gone because it has caused so much harm across multiple institutions. And that to me is a part of it. That to me um, is the violence, right? Um, the legal system, no translation services. And now we have our community members being deported at huge rates. You know, Biden deported 33 of our Vietnamese um, community members on the day that he announced that he was against Asian, anti-Asian hate crime, not implicating himself or um, the institutions writ large. So I want us to really think about that when we talk about anti-Asian violence. And then I also want us to think about real, real 
importantly, not briefly, but the logics and the politics of abolition also come from a long legacy of chattel slavery, of anti-blackness that built this country. Um, so when we talk about abolition, it's not only because it impacts Asians, it's because this country has committed so much harm and continues to do so against black communities, indigenous communities here and abroad and Asian communities that we ask, we demand a different world, right? That's what abolition means um, for folks who are organizing on the ground against violence and not only of the prison and police kind of uh it, um, institutions, but the ways that it has um, proliferated across our landscapes. Yeah, I think that that is a little bit of what's missing. Oh, oh I'm loving it. Eves. Yeah, so I mean, going off of what Connie says and Connie like really brings it into perspective to talk about all of this history and also thinking about what Nia says about like the ideas of like Asians being model minorities. I think they're twofold that like white supremacy tries to protect itself and that the state works in certain ways in order to invisibilize certain things in order to continue to perpetuate itself, right? So I think that if we use Atlanta as an example, there's an effort to invisibilize all the intersections in which violence occurs, right? Which we know that you can't untangle race or gender or like migrant status or any of these things from the violence that occurs. But a lot of people make an effort to invisibilize all of these things and just to say this is anti-Asian violence, which of course it is, right? But it's also gendered violence, but it's also anti-immigrant violence, but it's also anti-sex work phobic violence. And none of those things can really be untangled from it, but there's an effort to invisibilize that in order for the state to perpetuate itself. Because if you are, if you actually claim and own that the violence happens at these intersections, that these women were harmed by whorephobia, by anti-sex work narratives and criminalization, then you would the violence face also comes from like the prison system, also comes from the police, also comes from the deportation pipeline, right? So if you own all of those things, then you have to acknowledge that and you have to acknowledge the history. And I also think that as an effort to prop up Asians as model minorities, but also Asians in of themselves, some people want proximity to whiteness, right? For a lot of different reasons and even in ways that they might not know, try to distance themselves and try to perpetuate this themselves, right? And to push for these very specific narratives that invisibilize what Asians actually look like on a broader spectrum, right? What Nia talks about as like, there being Southeast Asians who are being deported. Often we don't like to talk about that because then it makes it really hard for us to be viewed as this and also for us to be weaponized and used against other marginalized groups, namely black people, namely like indigenous people, right? Because then we're viewed as like a very specific type of marginalized group that we're viewed in a very specific type of way. And we're not going to push against state violence the same way, right? But if you recognize that these women were like harmed by the stigmatization and criminalization of the sex trades. If you own that these women are harmed by the criminalization of undocumented immigrants, of all of these things, then you have to own that they are also being harmed by state violence. And people don't want to talk about that. And people don't want to untangle that. And they don't want to think about it. 
our next question, I want to go back to um, just sort of the pushback and the um, the issues that are happening within um, both the within the Asian American community and outside the committee. Um, when we even talk about prison abolitionist stance on um, anti-Asian violence work, you know, how do you all really respond to that? Um, I'll call on uh, Mia first. <laughs> I'm putting my hand to my face because I have this, it's, Hella embarrassing that we need to like lobby our own people. Right. right. That's, that's what I that's what I mean. It's like, it's like, why do we have to collect our own people? So that's the that's really the question. Well, yeah, well, I learned that from a very young age, um, especially when my mother was seeking support from her friends, right? Especially when she was running from the violence from my stepfather. And I would say, he's a good man. He he loves you, you take care of the family. But I'm saying to myself, he's a piece of shit. He's beating you. Why aren't you leaving him? Right? I didn't understand that. But I realized, you know, when I end up in my own intimate violence relationship, it's hard. It's hard to break free, especially from the shame and stigma, you know, that we experience within not just ourselves, but our own people, right? To reject you, uh, to say, hey, the only way for you to live right or get right is you have to be like white folks. Go to college. <laughs> Go to college. Do right. Be a good girl. You know, X, Y, Z. But, but I'm like, but what about this? You know, what's going on from my family traumas, from us, our background, you don't understand, right? Um, this some sort of like forced assimilation, what didn't work for me, which didn't work for, you know, Southeast Asian people. Um, and in the, in the, and then if you think about it, it's like, so I think when I was inside, um, in a way, you know, as being an Asian woman, right, um, being a survivor, I did see other Asians, but we really, you know, like, never really spoke about it because it's just culturally some things we don't talk about, our emotions, you know, our background, what we're going through, right? Um, I found these connections with, you know, my, you know, my my Black friends, you know, my Hispanic friends who are able to have that similar background, that connection, and then I get it, like, oh, you know, um, and I, I realized, you know, once I got out that it is so hard to, um, to, uh, especially, you know, being the label that I have, you know, having my conviction, um, my own incarceration. Um, even though when I was incarcerated, my mother was telling some of my friends, yeah, like, you know, um, even my Filipino friends, like their parents were telling them that they were like, you know, away in school or somewhere, you know, not that they were incarcerated, right? It's just that shame. Um, I don't know. It's like so, like they want to be like part of that um, the society, you know, to be successful, you have to, again, go to college, have a career, you know, be a doctor, be a whatever, you know, and that's something like, I didn't want to be like, I just wanted to get the hell out of that violent home and, you know, figure it out for myself just to survive, like for myself, like day to day. And then, um, which I'm grateful for now, you know, in a way, like my own experience, um, making these connections for people um, that are impacted, especially talking to their families or loved ones, um, they go, First thing they know is like, wow, are you an attorney? Like, no, I'm actually I was incarcerated. I'm not an attorney. This is what I, what I, what I'm saying is like you, in order to free your loved one from prison from ICE detention, you have to really own it, admit it. You know that what kind of support you would have needed. You know, uh, prior to your son or your daughter being incarcerated. Like, what? How has the system in the U.S. failed you in a way, right? Not to shame your loved one um, for them or blame them. Like, it's your fault. That's why you ended up 
you know, being sent to survive or whatnot. You know, I go, no, it's not their fault. Um, even you might think it is, but how do we move forward? You know, how do we reconcile the harm, um, heal, you know, not from our own traumas, but yet in a way, how do we, um, again, like collect our families to um, to grow, to have, you know, a semblance of life, you know, not just, you know, but yet they really don't have that um, fair opportunity, like I just shared, you know, because of these laws that are created that's to benefit, you know, white patriarchy, white society, because you think about it, like, um, going back to historically, like, why did the Chinese Exclusion Act happen, right? Because um, why did, you know, why did they stop, you know, immigration, you know, uh, people from migrating? Because, you know, they were fearing, like, you know, their jobs were being taken over. You know, they're in the railroad, they're in the railroad. You know, I'm learning all this stuff, you know, I'm in college right now, anyways, <laughs> about Asian American histories. And I'm just, like, profound, like, historically, how we as Asian people have really, the only way that we've been surviving is because we've really, like, in a way, dumbed down and um, dumbed down in a way, like, to lead, uh, to follow what, they want us to be like like them. If we don't, that's how they're going to fight back. Why do you think white supremacy are so hella organized? Think about it. They stick together. And if we do not stick together, if we do not um, stick with our Black communities, you know, and our Hispanic communities, Latinx that are really um, fighting against the same systems, how are we going to, you know, move forward and resolve, um, stop, you know, Asian hate, stop all forms of violence? You know, especially we have to look to our Black, you know, movement leaders who the civil rights movement have opened this opportunity for us. And we cannot turn our backs on them to create, like, you know, hate crimes or legislations, laws. It's only going to pit our communities against each other. Um, that's why I'm out here. I'm so grateful that, you know, I get to work with amazing people. That's to say, you know, like, Abolitionist is the only way for us to move forward to create a world we want to see, you know, um, to have, you know, for our families, um, right? What safety really means, safety is not locking people up. Safety is not um, punishing your survivors, um, saying, oh, well, you were in this type of relationship, so you deserve it, you know, get locked up or whatever happens to you. Um, safety is not, I'm saying, well, if you get deported, well, your family can come visit you. No, that's not it. Everybody as a human being has the right. Um, to be home with their loved ones, their family, right? And um, again, I can't st stress enough, I'm so grateful to be out here um, because y'all not going to shut me up. I'm going <laughs> to continue to work that I do to dismantle this whole effing system because it's all corrupt. Okay, next. <laughs> I'd like to chime in on this question of what kind of pushback we get in our communities. And I think, you know, probably the most common thing that we hear is, what about the rapists? Um, and, you know, I think Miriam Kaba has written on this, like in some of her um, in some of her work about how this question can be leveraged kind of in bad faith, because, um, yeah, what about the rapists? The police are the largest organized network of rapists and traffickers domestically. And American soldiers are the largest organized network of rapists and traffickers abroad. So then, yeah, what about the rapists, right? And um, and I think there's a matter of refocusing that question, but there is also the matter of genuinely exploring this question, like, okay, let's talk about it then. What about the rapists? What's happening to them right now? And what do you want to happen? And also when you say rapist, are you thinking about your close loved ones who have perpetrated sexual harm. And, you know, given what we know about the fact that domestic violence and sexual abuse and child sexual abuse um, 
originates in our families and our homes. Um, that means that we're also thinking about like, um, it's not just theoretical, but it's thinking about like, how do you want to contend with your loved ones? And I think, you know, uh, many of us grew up with family secrets and as we get older, we're uncovering them. And so the rapist is not just the person over there that got arrested um, for like attacking someone um, in, an, in an empty street, but it turns out the rapist is your mother. It turns out the rapist is your grandfather. It turns out the rapist is your cousin, you know? And, um, and so that question of what about the rapists, I think needs to be engaged with in a serious, um, in a serious and rigorous way that I think I rarely see from people asking this question. And I think also that I rarely see from ourselves too, because it's a hard question to answer. And, and I think we need to be a little bit more willing to, um, to have that conversation of how do we address gender violence and sexual harm and, you know, all these different forms of abuse, um, <clears throat> in a way that genuinely creates more safety because what we're, what we have right now is not it, but I also don't want to say don't ask the question because what we're doing is not working, you know? So I think, um, you know, that's one area of pushback that I see from people who are asking in bad faith and also from people who are like, but what do we do? Like, I'm really confused. And, um, and I'm there with, you know, with people who are asking that question too, because I wonder that often, you know, I think supporting survivors in such a variety of really extreme forms of violence and sometimes even lethal danger, you know, that is a question you have to ask, like, what is safety? How do we create that? We, what we have is not working, but saying that what we have is not working is, is not enough. So I think that's like a question that I also kind of challenge myself to try to think about as like a serious political inquiry, which is what do we do, you know, with our loved ones and with people that we don't love <laughs> that, um, that are perpetrating all kinds of violence. Right. And, um, and also to say that regardless of what you do, you don't deserve to be tortured, incarcerated, like given what we know about the prison system in the United States, it is tantamount to torture what happens inside. Um, and I think the other pushback I get sometimes is actually from other survivors and other criminalized and criminalized survivors. Um, I had a conversation with a friend recently where <clears throat> she is an um, she's an Asian formerly incarcerated survivor, and um, and I was connected recently to to another survivor who is facing uh, first degree murder charges um, after self defense um, re resulted in the death of her of her partner. And uh, and so the media around this case has been particularly horrible. And so, um, you know, I asked the survivor, like, do you want to be connected to other people who have gone through something similar as you? And she said, yes, like, I've been so alone. And so I reached out to this friend and I was like, you know, are you willing to talk to her? I mean, you can read about her case online, but, you know, what's in the media is not is first of all, it's not good. <laughs> and secondly, it's not it's not all true. And so she read it and she was like, you know, Hedgen, I wanted to just ask, like, if someone is a domestic violence victim or survivor, does that mean like anything they do is justified and that we should support anything that they do, even if it is really dangerous, like even if it is really violent themselves? And I was kind of like, well, you know, I don't know that that's the question that I would <laughs> that I I don't know that that's the way that I would frame it. Um, but, you know, with your case, too, there was a lot written about you that wasn't true and a lot 
said about you that wasn't true. And you never really got to say your own piece because it all had to be through your attorneys. And, you know, I think you should make a judgment for yourself about this person, but, you know, extending some grace, you know, with, with this person, because I believe her, whether you believe her or not is going to be something that you judge for yourself. Um, but like, you know, um, like the question I also asked her was like, ultimately does her incarceration resolve anything? You know, does this bring this person back? Does this um, undo the violence that um, that has been happening in her home and that she endured and the violence that ripples out from domestic violence too? And um, and so I think like it's these conversations require, I think, a lot of compassion and love um, as well as just rigor, political rigor, intellectual rigor. And um, and ultimately, you know, with this person, <laughs> um, she did have the conversation with the, with the survivor and she came back to me and was like, Hejin, I talked to her for a really long time and we need to help her. <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, I'm glad that like you reached that conclusion and we can kind of work together um, to support this person because chances are, um, you know, even with people that you don't expect to have resonance with, if you've been criminalized or you're a survivor, chances are there are more commonalities than not. And, um, and also just like, um, like, I think that when the, when the question is framed as one of punishment, um, it doesn't always get to like, okay, then what next? What after the punishment? What is like, you know, what, what then, then where we, where do we go from there? Actually, I'm sorry, I have one more thing to say too, um, which is that pushback also comes from domestic violence and sexual assault organizations, which I have been a part of. And um, and the the idea that we have to be reliant upon district attorneys um, and police to, um, like that we have to be on their good side in order for them to take DV cases seriously or prosecute them seriously. And so there's this kind of... Um, like captivity that has happened with DVNSA organization, domestic violence and sexual assault organizations, where I think they've been very defanged in their ability and their intellectual like um, imagination, their political imaginations to to challenge that reliance on police and prosecutors. Because a lot of times, like as an advocate, what made my job harder was dealing with them. That sucked up so much time. It was so disempowering for like myself and for the survivor. And um <clears throat> And so like this reliance that has been created through funding, through um, the efforts to have domestic violence and, and gender violence to be viewed as crimes um, and only legitimate as crimes. Like, I think that has done just such a huge disservice to um, not just those organizations capacity to really support survivors um, and the pool of survivors that they think that they're helping, but also our own communities and our own creativity and our own imagination about what we can do when violence happens, like what we can do to safety plan, how we can support someone in the long term, like how to emotionally support ourselves too when we see that our family member or our loved one has gone back for like the eighth time and you know, you just know it's going to happen again. So I think there's just like so much um, of so much of like that terrain of responding to gender violence has been ceded to this kind of professionalization, I think to, to the really great detriment of, of all of us. So.
Um, I mean, I think that like Hedgen and you know, everybody has really covered a lot. And for and we obviously share community as well. Um, for me, I think what I would want to point out or talk about in terms of getting pushback from community on having an abolitionist stance to anti-violence is for sex workers and other people who engage in criminalized labor, you'd be surprised how many of those people aren't abolitionist, right? Um, and I partially think that that's because white supremacist, ableist, cis-hetero patriarchy asks us to dispose of people in any number of degrees, right? To view others through the lens of criminality and to be okay with criminalizing certain people, whether or not you yourself engage in criminalized labor. So even when you are a sex worker, even when you engage in other forms of criminalized labor, it's exactly as Hedgen says, which is that, you know, you're still going to ask, what about the rapist? What about these other people? And like viewing certain things as being like heinous crimes that are deserving of the kinds of torture and violence that occurs in incarceration, right? Um, and so I think a lot of people, despite being pro-decriminalization of sex work, don't actually make the connection that in order for decriminalization of sex work to even occur, you have to have the abolition of police, of prisons, the entire prison industrial complex, right? And this is true of all different forms of criminalized labor where I still see people who have this sort of mindset that people, it's really hard for people to rip apart those kinds of mindsets of thinking about people as like being particularly violent or particularly awful and then deserving of incarceration and deserving of certain things. But I would ask people to look at that and really think about it because those sorts of narratives are used to criminalize all of us, right? Are Those are the types of narratives that say that certain people are deserving of deportation, that says that certain people are deserving of all of these things who are part of our community. And it's not to cut it up and say, oh, I might engage in criminalized labor, but it shouldn't be criminalized. I think that nobody should be criminalized. And the only way that that happens is if we abolish the prison industrial complex, right? And that's kind of how I feel about it and where I see pushback most often is exactly as Hedgen and others have said, is that people... Still, regardless of all different realms, right, whether you're supporting DV survivors, whether you're like in community or you're a person of color, all of these things, a lot of people have a really hard time giving up this idea and a really hard time of imagining a world that's different, especially because we it's really hard to name immediately the ways in which we're going to make people safe and the ways in which we're going to make the changes. Right. They're not so easy for us to be like, oh, yeah, we can make this happen tomorrow. It's long, hard work that happens over time. So I think um, there are a few, as always, a couple of thoughts that I have. Um, directly to the direct question, which is what type of pushback do we get, right? Or do I get? I have to be clear that um, in the past year and a half or, or so that there has been more coverage around a particular form of anti-Asian violence um, that has been covered by mainstream media or circulated on social media. When we come out, for, especially if it's women or femmes or queer, non-binary communities, when we come out to say that we are for racial solidarity or that we are abolitionists, or that we are assessing um, how some of this coverage is potentially anti-Black, right? Those of us who take that position are under immense threats. 
whether that means we get doxxed, we get hate mail um, via all the kinds of mail. We are people are in our DMs. Um, people are in our comments with threats, um, including, you know, things that I've heard is you should have been the one to have gotten attacked. Um, wait till you get assaulted, all of these things. So to me, that's the immediate way that we are getting pushed. We're facing pushback, which is that we get threats, death threats. Um, and, um, you know, people slide into your emails to say you're a disgrace. Um, those kind of things are the kind of pushbacks that I think I get and some folks here on the webinar also receive. Um, and that's a little disheartening, if not painful, and then infuriating, right? Um, I think it's important, though, that when we talk about abolition, we have to really think about what is what is it that we're trying to abolish? And by saying that, I think through, you know, people talk about the prison industrial complex, people talk about prisons, people talk about policing, right? And as people talk about abol abolishing these institutions and these agencies and these walls um, and the torture within them and the torture through them, we want to talk about the history of these institutions, right? They are historically and fundamentally anti-Black. Their history comes from anti-Blackness, chattel slavery, and the likes, right? They also come from a history of anti-indigeneity. See, you know, boarding school, see, you know, all these kind of forced reservations, um, death, genocide, right? There are histories to these institutions that modern-day organizers are saying um, need to be abolished. There is a legacy behind these institutions that we are trying to um, tend to. And then there are these current practices of these prison policing, immigration, ICE um, detentions, our current practices that are also fundamentally anti-Black, anti-Indigenous, uh, xenophobic, um, patriarchal, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Right. These institutions don't only have these qualities, but they usher in these politics. When people ask us, you know, um, do you not care about the elder who is being harmed on the street when you talk about abolition? My quick response is like, you actually think that these people care for these elders or are they trying to um, reinscribe themselves? Or are they trying to increase policing or are they trying to be just um, anti-black and pro-police? Right. So in, in my mind and in my politics, I'm like, if you know the history of these institutions, why are you trying to preserve them? If you know what is happening with George Floyd, what had happened with George Floyd, with Sandra Bland, with, you know, um, Tommy Lay in 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 Seattle, when you know what's happening to, you know, I remember Psycap in um, Honolulu um, in Hawaii where he was shot and killed. When you know about all these people who have been shot and killed by the police, can you please explain to me why you are trying to call on the police that continue to cause so much harm? Right. The question then has to go back to them because they keep trying to uphold the systems that have caused tremendous harm historically and, and ongoingly. Right. 
When we ask these questions, the pushback tends to be, you don't care about your elders. And I'm like, really? Because last I saw, my mom is an elder who's also from Oakland in the town, right? Um, Last I thought, I've been advocating for elders and survivors. So I would love for people who are pushing back um, against these facts or this history to really think through whether or not they're just invested in these systems because they they have um, no other options, right? Because I, I, I want to scale back because now I'm like kind of like on a, now I'm angry, right? But I want to think back to some of the elders who have been harmed that we see on, on, you know, social media. And I understand some of the, a lot of the impulse around protecting um, and taking care of our communities that are being harmed. But I want us to extend that care and extend that care to look at the prison industrial complex as um, perpetrators of violence and harm. I want us to think through policing as perpetrators of violence and harm. So that when you think through what is the solution to the violence that you see on on TV, you also want to think through, do you really want to call the police that continue to to make survivors out of our communities? Right. Because I get the impulse to take care of our communities. But we don't we also have to ask the question, why does the criminal justice system have a monopoly on how we're supposed to tend to our communities? And why is that monopoly historically and institutionally racist? Right. So I I think that's the different ways of like um, some of the pushback and what I would respond to um, in terms of this pushback. It's 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 um, a part of me feels like some of that pushback is because there is such a monopoly in how we understand justice and fairness and how we have a minimized understanding of what violence is. Um, because if they really did care about the rapists, about violence per se, and I hope that they do, then they would think through Trump and they would think through some of these CEOs and they would think through, um, wage theft, right. As, um, violence that they need to tend to as well. And I want to follow up a little bit more, um, on that same point is that the challenges that the pushback is part of the very real challenges during this time of increased interest in violence against our communities. Is there anything else that you want to highlight about these challenges that we're facing? Um, so many of us are definitely facing it. What are your thoughts about the other pushback that we're getting or the, the challenges that we're experiencing um, is again, you know, this kind of mainstream narrative around what constitutes violence. Um, they, the mainstream narrative continues to erase the nuances and the stories of our most vulnerable and most harmed communities. That's one of the challenges. I think the other thing is that um, the stories and the experiences of our most harmed are also getting hijacked by mainstream institutions and organizations um, in multiple platforms. And I think that's a challenge. I think that 
people are also failing to remember how many service providers have been at this for decades, right? Um, Hajin mentioned working for a domestic violence shelter. There are so many service providers that have been working to end violence, specifically gender-based violence in our communities, which hasn't been accounted for in any of the media right now. Um, there's That's the challenge too, is people are um, not doing a good job telling our communities complex stories and then hijacking the narratives and then hijacking the work um, such that they end up with a lot of credit um, and a lot more funding than they had initially. So I think that's part of the challenge too. And how do we hold everyone accountable to that? Um, Some of it is in good faith and some of it has um, grown to be in questionable faith. Um, I can answer on the question of like what we have to lose as the interest grows. I mean, I think that when anything becomes mainstream, there's a lot to lose and we've already lost so much when the anti-violence movement started becoming much more mainstream and when things like me too became much more mainstream, we had, a we lost a lot in terms of how we talk about violence, how we talk about domestic violence, how we talk about gender-based violence, because it becomes simplified is often taken over by a lot of things for a lot of reasons. And usually that is to perpetuate white supremacy and plenty of other things. And I think that in this moment, Uh, we've already touched on it a lot, is that it's not just the mainstreaming of Asian issues and the simplification that occurs. And Nia talks about this, right? Like how we have dealt with so many different types of violence. So many people continue to deal with so many different types of violence or subjected to different types of violence. And people don't really want to talk about that, right? And I think that that's a really clear, when you look at the history of when movements become much more mainstream, what you lose. When we see Me Too become mainstream, people often don't talk about other like perpetuators of sexual violence. We don't often talk about the ways in which the police will sexually assault with impunity. We often don't talk about those sorts of things. And in this moment, we often don't talk about many of the members of our community that become invisibilized. We don't talk about incarcerated people. We don't talk about people who are in the deportation pipeline. We don't talk about any of those people. And obviously we don't talk about sex work. And when we talk about massage workers, right, I've often said that if the sex work movement becomes much more mainstream, we have a lot to lose and that there is such a simplification as to what occurs in the sex trades. There are so many different forms of sex work, some people who don't identify with sex work, and we have a lot to lose in this moment. In the immediate aftermath, when people kept asking us questions about things, because of how much there is attention on this. There are a lot of massage workers who are really hesitant to even come out and speak about anything because they don't want more attention to be on them. And this is also sort of the double-edged sword of mainstreaming, right, is we're so heavily surveilled. And there are a lot of people who don't want to be associated with certain topics and who don't want to talk about certain things. And so you lose a lot of that when you have so many eyes on you and so many people want you to talk and so many of our words get twisted, right? How many interviews have I done and how many of those are actually good, right? And so I think that when we talk about that, that's what we have to lose in this moment. And 
there's so much interest. And quite frankly, I don't want, as Connie has said, I don't really want to be at the table with a lot of these people. I don't want to be at a table where people want to talk about Asian representation in like Hollywood. I don't really want to talk about those things. And those aren't what the things that we're interested in. And people tend to simplify it. And that's how the conversation around and like anti-Asian violence becomes so immediately not abolitionist, so immediately carceral, right? Is that so much of the work that we've been doing for years, the work of supporting massage workers, the support, the work of supporting Asian DV survivors, of supporting Asian incarcerated people, all of these things immediately erased, right? And because people are like, the way that we're going to solve this is hate crime legislation. I just wanted to um, echo that point too, Eves, because... I'm also excited that this moment has, for the past couple of years, a lot of community members um, have, and younger generations, and actually generations writ large, like intergenerationally, people have become increasingly activated, right? And that is exciting um, because people want to be more um, uh, informed around the structures and the systems um, that have led us to this point. Um, In our experiences, at least a a lot of the organizers and educators that I know, people are hungry for um, knowledge, right? Um, That's one thing that I think is also really helpful. And I also think that what that demonstrates to me, including, you know, folks who are Um, now creating community safety teams in New York, in L.A., um, in Oakland, some of these folks are becoming more increasingly politicized, right? Reading and learning from kind of older organizers. Um, What that demonstrates to me is that folks are, are, have been and are going with some of their intuitive instincts, which is to take care of each other, right? And I think that's really important. When in Oakland, for instance, when our, you know, kind of, uh, what are they called? Like our, I was going to call them bureaucrats. When some some of our city representatives decided to um, take our community stories in order to um, push for pro-policing funding and, um, you know, uh, legislation and bills, people came out in our communities from all over to come and take care of our communities, right? Like they came walking around the streets. They're still out there, you know, still in, in, you know, my family's in Chinatown, we have folks who are walking around. They don't want any kind of attention. They just want to take care of our communities, right? The pushback or the harm or the limitation is that there are some people who want to who want to make that into a part of the police, right? When the community takes care of each other, we're doing it very differently from when the police come in to police our people, right? It's also important that in Oakland, Chinatown, the Oakland Police Department is literally like one and a half blocks away. So they have always been a part of the community and still there's this violence. So my concern and some of the pushback or the challenges or whatever is that, again, mainstream politics coupled with the with the um, historic reliance on the criminal justice system and then the criminal justice system that would like to continue to like propel itself. Those three entities will hijack and take away what the community is trying to build with each other. 
We learned through George Floyd and the uprisings that we could take care of each other. Under COVID, we were doing mutual aid every which way we could, right? We had refrigerators. We had people running errands for elders. At our organization, we were funding 10-year-olds to go to the food bank to you know, bring food to the elders. We were doing this together as our community and not anything close to near the police because we knew that it was causing our people harm. The challenge is to make sure that that um, the mainstream world, the pro-policing world does not try to take that from us, right, again. So I just wanted to um, share that narrative. And then also just to really uplift the ways the communities really do try to show up for each other and actually do take care of each other um, outside of policing. I just definitely. want to add, I was going to say definitely, I was like, definitely, definitely. Yeah. I just, just wanted to add to Connie's point and Dave's point that um, how does mainstream really do that, right? Did they take advantage? How do they, like, um, these false, like, lies, how do they create that, right, these lies, um, the fear-mongering, right? Um, they want to say immigrants, you know, people, especially like in general, incarcerated people, once they're released, like they have the stigma, you know, of having these convictions, their labels, they're having a hard time, especially being an immigrant itself, like as a parolee, you know, once I was, I think um, that's really what they want to, um, nav- you know, gravitate on, um, especially they want to, um, uh, people that don't like understand, um, unless they, you know, are actually like, you know, are, um, a family member or a loved one, right? Even then itself, um, it's hard. They, you know, want to be removed from it. I think the only way that we're doing now, especially the work that I'm doing um, around, you know, the California is supposed to be safe state, but California is still transferring people and immigrants to, you know, um, CDCR is still working with prisons, trash from the ICE detention, especially people that um, have, you know, did their time, uh, decades old convictions. We're talking about, you know, 15, 20 years old. But yet at the same time, um, we want to, you know, have, you know, criminal justice reform or whatnot. But really, reform, yes, works, but really the goal is to abolish. <laughs> all these reforms to get rid of prisons entirely. So I'm really, you know, grateful. Um, I think to Connie's point too, that um, we have to really think about how do we like start telling these stories, right? Like my story, you know, when I said, like, yeah, and I have a murder conviction and what? You know, I was at a city council meeting. They said, you know, we need to deport those one with the murder convictions and the rapists. And I stood up and I said, yeah, so you want to deport me? Like, okay. Let's talk about it, like the reasons why. Get to know me and my back and why why I end up um, being failed by these systems, right? Where when I offer these um, resources, why do um, young people, you know, who get sentenced to this egregious sentence, life without parole, um, but yet they, in a way, they healed and they grow. They became leaders and mentors while incarcerated. And now they're out here joining, you know, together working again, to um, to disrupt these systems, to expose for what it is, that um, it's not working, it's harming, that the only way to move forward is again, <laughs> to work together collectively with our Black and brown communities. Um, that's why, you know, I'm really grateful for the moment that I am, that I'm out here and being able to, again, do the work. And um, I'm really excited, you know, where this will lead us as California um, in terms of, like, you know, even though we have Biden as president, but yet, Really, how are we going to challenge that him and the administration um, to protect, you know, um, Asians, the immigrants, the refugees, to really, you know, protect survivors as well? 
right? Um, to say, let's not be complacent, you know, let's continue, you know, to, um, to really push back, um, to really um, look at these, you know, through re- wide eye, you know, lenses. And, but again, we have to, you know, I think as um, communities to really support each other and trust each other. <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm going to move us to our last question and then I will open it up for the question and answers. We definitely have questions. <laughs> so let's make sure we have a little bit of time for that too. Oh, this has gone by really fast. Okay. Um, last question, everyone. Um, really, what does solidarity look like? And, you know, really what is needed now, given the moment against the backdrop of everything, um, what do we need to do? Uh, Eves, I'm going to start with you. Yeah, I mean, so what does solidarity look like? I mean, a lot of people on this panel have already acknowledged this, but our work exists in the legacy of Black, feminist, queer, and trans-led anti-carceral organizing. And it and sex worker organizing is very much the same, it exists in the legacy of Black, trans, Latinx, Indigenous organizing. And I fully believe that that solidarity lies there and that we should like continue to work together to uplift that work. And also, I mean, in terms of talking about solidarity, I think parts of solidarity also involves like, how do we have like intra-community solidarity, which I quite frankly don't feel. And I think that a lot of people would probably agree with me. I think that a lot of Asian people don't even have solidarity for their own communities, right? Often have great disdain for sex workers, often have great disdain for survivors, often will cut out survivors much quicker than abusers in their own community will also cut out people who have ever been criminalized and incarcerated. And I think that there's a huge lack of solidarity intra-community and then having that solidarity across the board into like talking about other marginalized people of color is even harder, right? But that's what solidarity looks like is for us to like really meet each other and to know what solutions are actually going to work for everybody. Because I've said this before and I think it's a little bit controversial to say, right? But I think that of course there are probably Asian people, especially like light-skinned, like East Asian people who would probably to some degree benefit from policing, right? Like there are Asian landlords out here. There are other people who very much so want to incarcerate other people in the community, right? But it's about asking ourselves in this moment, whenever we feel sort of like pushed and we're feeling very reactionary towards violence that our community faces, I would ask the larger community to ask, okay, is policing actually going to benefit us? Is like, are any of these things going to benefit us? Is incarceration going to benefit us? Like in the grand scheme of like broader community, right? How much harm actually comes to black folks? How much harm comes to indigenous folks who comes to like trans folks, other queer folks and other people even within our own community, right? And I think that oftentimes people don't think about that because in the immediate people are like, oh, well, you know, I'm a good, respectable Asian 
woman who like never commits any crimes. So to me, the police are not a problem. To me, incarceration is never in my purview, right? And so I think that that has to be thought about when we think about solidarity. And then what are the ways forward? It's like, how do we build from there? And Connie's brought this up and other people have brought this up, right? But people are creating ways of community safety and things that exist outside. And plenty of people already have for a really long time, right? This work has existed for decades and decades prior to us, continues now. People have been supporting each other, doing mutual aid. And that, I think, are the foundations for how we move forward, right? We say, look at the ways in which people already aren't calling the police. Look at the work that's being done in harm reduction, right? Look at the ways in which we avoid people who are drug users in our community from being incarcerated while still making sure that people are safe, people are alive, making sure that people are fed, all of these things, right? Other people and people in our own communities, the sex working community has built the foundations for how we're going to build out all of these other structures without policing, without incarceration. I spoke about solidarity without saying the word solidarity. Um, I'll just keep it short. So for me, solidarity looks like is, um, as East mentioned and as folks mentioned too, that we need to stop the reliance on punitive measures um, for the cultural system, right? And policing, prosecuting, um, incarcerating, you know, detaining and deporting, you know, people, um, you know, that is the only way uh, what solidarity looks like to me. Then also that we need to, again, um, think about what does, you know, accountability looks like, uh, especially, you know, if the person is doing harm, how do we hold them accountable? Um, again, without relying on, you know, of the police, on the incarceration, you know, the um, system that um, we are able to only, you know, that we are better together when we work to, you know, work together, protect each other. And um, as you see, you know, we also have, solidarity it looks like to me, is we have to reject the false dichotomy of what, you know, good victims, what a perfect victim is, of what, um, you know, a, a bad person is. No one, people are not, you know, good or bad. People, you know, we've all made mistakes. And some of us, like myself, you know, we, we have, you know, paid, you know, immense, you know, um, time, you know, incarcerated, but yet at the same time, recognize, you know, our humanity, that ultimately that the only way um, to stop Asian hate, to stop violence for all our communities is that we need to really stand in solidarity uh, for our, you know, black and brown communities, especially looking to the black um, organizations, you know, the Black Lives Movement, follow them. They are are taking, they've been doing this work for a long time, right? And um, again, I can't stress it enough that um, this is the moment while we have, you know, we're working on Stop Asian Hate. Again, um, you know, look look toward each other, support each other, and, you know, trust each other, you know, in the process um, that collectively only we, we can um, dismantle the harm of against white supremacy. I was taking notes, sorry. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> I think for me, um, around solidarity, you know, API Women Lead has it in our mission statement that, you know, we do this work in solidarity. And as we develop, we've been thinking a lot about this term because right now it's actually become, <laughs> it, it's it's now become an empty term uh, because everyone's just out here just using the word solidarity all, all the time. And so I think we have to, per this question, really tease that apart. Um, and in doing that, I've learned from, you know, a colleague of mine, um, Dylan Rodriguez, um, 
he was in a call with um, the U-Medics in Chicago, which is a mobile medical clinic in Southside Chicago. Um, and one of the things that folks apparently, you know, said was that it's not about accountability per se, but it's about collective responsibility. And I've been really sitting with that idea about collective responsibility. What does it look like if we were all responsible for each other? Right. It would fall in alignment with everything we've been saying around mutual aid, right, Um, around taking care of our communities. What if we took care of all of our people such that, um, you know, they were not um, placed in harm's way and they also didn't commit harm? I think that's really important, right? Um, I think through in terms of, um, you know, collective responsibility, solidarity. Right now, I think a lot about a, a dear friend and colleague, Mia Mingus's work. Uh, Mia Mingus has talked a lot about transformative justice. She is a huge transformative justice, you know, leader. She's also a disabil- disability justice um, uh, kind of icon, thought leader for us. And one of the things that she helps me to think through as well is around mental health and health as a part of the disability justice movement. You know, there are a lot of folks who are hurting right now. Um, They have been hurting for a long time. And one of the things that she said on a webinar of ours is when we get rid of prisons, um, we still need to take care of our our folks who are uh, mentally um, disabled right now. Um, We don't want to replace one carceral system with another carceral system, right? I bring these points up because... um, I think this society in particular has done a very bad job in taking care of our communities, our emotional health, our physical health, our mental health, our spiritual health, and we've definitely done a poor job in doing this collectively. Uh, With gentrification, with organized abandonment, we've done an awful job. And I think solidarity looks like we need to get rid of the systems and the institutions that have enabled this um, and create something else together where we are accountable, right? Um, To use Nia's term, where we are accountable and we are taking care of each other. When I also think about the institutions of carcerality, I also think about the ethos of carcerality, meaning that folks don't always have to call the police. They're already policing, right? Um, Schools are big institutions. Teachers are often policing, and particularly they are policing Black youth, um, targeting Black youth, and then Indigenous youth, and that next youth, and um, queer youth, and non-binary youth, right? We have to think about divesting from an ethos of carcerality, right? Um, Where there is the valuable and the um, dispensable, right? For us, everyone Um, is accountable and responsible um, to each other such that no one is dispensable. Um, You can be mad at somebody, right? But if some harm is being done, you have to ask, um, how did that happen? Right, and that isn't about victim blaming or that isn't about gaslighting because everybody's using the term gaslighting right about now. Um, It's about being collectively responsible for everyone in in our um, communities, right? So I just wanted to, I think that's what I think about solidarity is expanding it to responsibility, thinking about the structures and systems, and then divesting from the systems that have caused so much harm beyond the prisons, the police, but also just policing writ large.
we can um, move on to the question and answer and then come back um, when you have um, your sound uh, pop up. We have, we could probably just take one question, honestly, just because of time. Um, the first question that we have are, are there good examples of community-led um, safety initiatives that you know, you've heard of either locally or nationally? Um, I can kind of start this. I can like root it very tangibly into some things, right? I mentioned that, you know, we can look to harm reduction folks for the work that they've done in terms of trying to be risk aware around drug use and how we avoid drug users from ending up being incarcerated because they're doing something that's criminalized, right? Criminalized behavior. And when we have like widespread Narcan and training, when all of us get trained to do this, right? Nobody is going to OD on our watch. So that is a way that which we see community safety exist outside of the carceral system, right? And I often mention the work of sex workers because if you engage in criminalized labor, you already know that the police are not an option. And often when we look at other people who in the same realm, right? Any type of violence that you might face as someone who is potentially criminalized for a lot of reasons, and you especially see this in communities where you know that police are not on your side. You see this a lot in like black led spaces as well, that people know that the police are not there for you. So they're not going to call the police. So what are the ways that we keep ourselves safe outside of the ideas of carcerality? If something happens to me, I'm certainly not going to call the police. I'm going to call my friend. I'm going to call Hedgen. I'm going to call Stephanie, right? And people are going to step in to support you. And those are ways in which we've seen things, right? And I think that if you look into your local sex working organization, but to name someone that I think is like doing that work of keeping like very marginalized, vulnerable people safe would be like, whose corner is it anyway out of massive? Massachusetts, right? Working with street-based workers who are really vulnerable, whom are mainly people of color, like you see the ways in which they aren't engaging with the police, the ways in which they take care of each other, the ways in which they've been doing mutual aid for years to keep each other like out, like keep each other safe, to keep each other fed, right? They're not turning to the government. They're not turning to social services. They're not turning to welfare. They turn to each other. And I think that that's true everywhere. But I think other people are going to have other answers to this as well. Hi, can you hear me now? <laughs> Sorry about that earlier. Um, but I think the, the question that was offered from the audience was um, examples of community initiatives for safety, right, Stephanie? Okay, so I think I can fold in my answers to the question of like, what can solidarity look like? I mean, everyone already answered so beautifully. I don't feel a huge need to um, add too much more, but um, in terms of like community-led safety initiatives, I think of ways that, um, that that work is being done without necessarily being articulated or named as such. And, um, and I think one community-led safety initiative that, um, that I think is really important um, and necessary is creating um, education and processes within our organizations, within our movement spaces for when rape and sexual assault and domestic violence come up, which very few of us have. And, um, and I think that is an act of solidarity because it's also, um, I think solidarity is also, is not just, it's, it's not about like, I think it's about being able to kind of like see, like clean up your own house too, you know, and not like, um, 
locating the problem is out there and in here we're pure and good and we don't make mistakes and we don't do violence right because that's absolutely not the case and um and so i think like um something that i'm proud of having done in um survived and punished california together um with nia and with you know a lot of other great folks is to start developing like a process and um like a way for people to share their stories if if they do want to bring it up um, about, you know, um, about another member using violence against them. And, and I think that is just really important and we don't do it enough because I think that's also an act of self-reflection, you know, and I think it's scary when we see the, um, the problems as being, you know, within, within our spaces too, within us as well. And, um, and I think another, like just another example off the top of my head, um, is you know with within Asian communities um, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there is an organization called Asian Women's Shelter, which I think has not actually received that many donations, like in the wake of the Atlanta shooting, which is um, really sad to me. And people should look into them and consider supporting. Um, but one of the things that they have is called like the multi um, multi language access model, which is about um, organizing people within their own ethnic communities, their own language communities, to act as advocates for each other, to educate each other, to hold interventions, and um, and so people have done really amazing things, like in the Thai Buddhist community, people have done really amazing things, like um, <clears throat> like in the Korean queer community, you know. And I think we need kind of more spaces for people to experiment with with learning and with um, and with doing stuff like themselves, you know. Like I, I think it's not just about producing more experts or producing more people who are politically um, like, you know politically well-versed in certain ways, but I think it's about like, how do we meet people where they're at and see what their strengths are? And also um, and also just like, really make sure that we do the hard work of self-reflection and improving, you know, the spaces that we are in, um, because it's just the, the, the epidemic of sexual violence and domestic violence, um, it has not spared radical leftist abolitionist formations. I think there are many ways that it actually has taken root in abolitionist communities as well and has created another layer that survivors often have to navigate of feeling um, afraid of, you know, um, afraid of being seen as wanting to criminalize or incarcerate other people by virtue of speaking out about what is happening to them or what has happened to them. So um, I think the work of solidarity continues like where where we are. We don't have to go somewhere out into another city or, you know, somewhere else to do the work. Um, it's within our families, our friendships, the, our, our, our own organizing homes. Hi, I'm sorry. I just glitched right when I was like, this is a great way to end. <laughs> um, I deeply appreciate each and every one of you um, for taking the time and um, this group of amazing femmes is available <laughs> to, to engage with at another moment too. If you want help ever um, when you're in a crisis, these are the people that I would choose. Um, and I know that deeply. And I, I, there's no one else. I would only go you know, to you all. And I just really, truly, truly appreciate you. So thank you so much. And we're going to wrap it up. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel.
where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.